0: Hello everyone, I'm Troy Dodds and welcome to the On the Record podcast presented by The Western Weekender. On this podcast, I'm joined by special guests who all have such great stories to tell about Penrith and the role they've played in our city. They are Penrith stories told by Penrith's people. Today, my special guest is State Member for Penrith, Stuart Ayres. Stuart is Penrith through and through and has risen to be Deputy Leader of the New South Wales Liberal Party. I really hope you enjoy our chat. Stuart, thanks for joining us.
1: Good to be here, Troy.
0: Now, uh, the question we always ask to kick things off, where were you born and where did you grow up?
1: Uh, Born in Canberra, actually. Uh, Old man was in the Uh. Air Force, so moved around a fair bit. Uh, Canberra, Wagga, Malaysia, Darwin, uh, before Dad got posted to RAF Base Glenbrook, which brought me to Penrith. And luckily, I think for me, that coincided with me starting high school. So uh, I feel like from high school onwards, the roots really got into the ground here in Penrith
0: and captures... Captures the soul and gets yeah. in the blood, and so so things are a bit more unsettled, I guess, for a child, for a general childhood, I guess, than, than most.
1: Uh, yeah, it's an interesting thing because a lot of people sort of talk about adaptability being one of the traits that they see as something that I, I I'm quite good at, and I've got no doubt in my mind that comes from the fact that pretty much all the way through primary school I was I was literally changing schools like every eighteen months, yeah, um, and that that just means you've got to adapt and change pretty quickly. So I think that became a bit of, became a, bit of a refined skill for me. But um, luckily, Dad's postings, last two postings in the Air Force were Glenbrook followed by Richmond, so mm-hmm. we didn't have to move. And uh, Penrith is where the whole family is. Mum and Dad are still here, my, my brother's here, and we love the joint.
0: And uh, what was high school like for you?
1: Oh, great fun. I had a great time. St Dom's for me. Yeah. Um, w- walked that well-trodden path of... Catholic school students <laughs> in the region, so St. Dom's from year seven to ten because it wasn't a it wasn't a full uh, seven to twelve school back then, and then moved over to McCarthy, finished my uh, my high school out at McCarthy, and had a great time. Obviously, you know, played a bit of footy in the community. Um, really, kind of got involved. I actually started to get involved in politics when I was at, at high school, uh, but I've had a wonderful time and still engaged with the with St. Dom's and and McCarthy or Panola as it's called now, but. Yeah. Um, yeah, I just have still very strong fond memories. Some of my closest mates are still my schoolmates.
0: I was going to ask you about the um, where where politics comes from. So, did you, did you would you consider your parents pretty political? Did you grow up in a political household, or where does it actually come from?
1: No, my parents are completely apolitical. Okay. I would describe them as uh, classic middle Australian swing voters. Yep. Um, I'd even confess to say that if I had to guess, I could probably go through a couple of federal elections. I I'd be <laughs> a bit hazy on the state ones, but I reckon federal elections. I could probably say that mum and dad might have voted for both sides of the fence yep, through, okay. through the through the years. What we were, though, was uh, a household that always had discussions. So there was a dinner table discussion. We'd all eat dinner together um, as much as we possibly could. And mum and dad just really fostered an environment where, where was Australia's place in the world, what values were important to us. N- never really saying these are the things you have to believe in, kind of finding your own path. And so... I think coming from a Defence Force family, living overseas as a young kid, moving around a little bit, I've always felt like I was a little bit more aware of what was out there and that we weren't just a little tiny little community. So, f- wanting to understand more about our place in history, our place in the world, probably led me a bit down that pathway.
0: And what about leaving high school? Where, where did you head off? I know that we first probably came across each other. You're doing some marketing work, I think, for ACPE. Um, back yeah, I did a sports
1: business degree. Yep. Uh, and then, after graduating, I actually worked for the Australian College of Physical Education. And mm-hmm. um, so, that's... So I did a, a business degree, I actually majored in sports management funnily enough, um, often joke I had to become yeah. the sports minister <laughs> to, to utilize that that part of the degree but um, yeah so marketing, business development um, and business management was really what I was doing um, and worked my way through sort of that professional career, um, that business got, got bought by an international business and it got expanded and allowed me to work on new products and and I was uh, going going pretty well, actually, and then came up with this crazy idea to run for a pretty safe Labor seat.
0: Yeah. Um So in where, state where did politics. that come from? Because you didn't take that uh, that sometimes traditional route of going on local council and, and doing it that side. So you're obviously involved with the Liberal Party. Uh, yeah. Through I, that mid two thousands kind no, of. No, no. I,
1: I actually st- I worked on my first campaign when I was fifteen. Yep. Um, it was nineteen ninety six. Uh, in that. John Howard election in 1996. We actually had a by election later that year, Mm -hmm. um, because they contested the, uh, result of the election. So there was, there were two elections in this region at that time, but, uh, got involved in campaigning. I kind of made a decision quite early that I, my sort of values were more aligned with the the Liberal Party values. Mm -hmm. And I felt like I wanted to be a participant in that discussion. I wanted to, um, get out and learn more about what was happening in the local community. Wanted to shape that, so I got involved in local campaigning. Um, didn't I'm probably not your classic young liberal, um, you know, local executive that type of stuff. I was involved in a local party, but I played footy, enjoyed my time in my teens and twenties, like yeah. I suppose most young guys do. And um, did did uni, but always stayed engaged. Engaged in politics. And I wasn't really thinking about running for a state election at all. It wasn't until we were sort of working our way through candidates for seats right around New South Wales in the lead up to the 2011 election Mm -hmm. that um, I started to contemplate the idea of maybe running for Penrith. In, uh, in what was an election lined up for 2011, but things changed a little bit.
0: Yeah, of course. Um, yeah, your path to becoming the state member for Penrith has brought forward a year in, uh, in 2010 uh, when the, the former uh, state member Karen Palazzano departs um, in, in obviously well-known circumstances. Um, there was obviously a feeling there that the, the, the Libs could take the seat in, in 2010, given the circumstances, but, um, but yeah, obviously a lot quicker than you would have imagined. Yeah,
1: I I won an internal pre-selection, so most parties have an internal election for the selection of their candidate. I won an internal pre-selection to be the candidate for the 2011 state election in April 2010, Mm. Uh, and then about 10 days after I'd been endorsed as our candidate, winning that pre-selection, Karen Palazzano stepped down from Parliament, and by-election was called, and... Six weeks later, I walked into the Legislative Assembly. When I when I did my first day of campaigning, I didn't have... I had two call flutes I'd actually got <laughs> printed locally with just my name because we hadn't even had a photo taken. So they were tied together with a couple of cable ties and... That was the only thing I had on the first day of campaigning
0: of course um, your opposition John Thane takes one for the team and, um, and 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 stands up as the uh, the labor candidate there and I remember I still remember there was there was both of you campaigning pretty strongly on Victoria bridge at that time obviously we fast forward now and see the uh, the new bridge but that that became a big vocal point in that election um, what was going to happen there
1: yeah I think the uh, in the by-election we we weren't sure whether we could win the seat. Like, it was a 10% mm-hmm. Labor seat. Um, we we knew that there was a lot of frustration with the Labor government at the time. We knew they were on the nose. Um, I think people were really starting to find out that Kevin Rudd probably wasn't the person they thought they'd voted for. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there was a lot of things that were kind of flowing in our favour. But also local issues came to the fore and... At the time, the safety of Victoria Bridge as a pedestrian crossing was, was one that was quite vocal in, in the public and we made commitments to, to find a solution for that and the, the outcome that we've got there now is a complete game-changer for the River Precinct and I think something that um, most people in Penrith are immensely proud of.
0: It's a, it's a record result for you at that by-election, probably beyond expectations um, and, and all of a sudden Penrith becomes a very safe um, Liberal seat a couple of things on that, though. I remember at the time uh, we chatted and you, you you were saying, look, there's a good chance here I'll be the member for a decade. And I don't think it came from an egotistical point of view. It came from the point of view, where, with that kind of margin, it will take a few elections for that to, to probably even itself out again. Did that give you, I guess, a better situation where you didn't have to focus necessarily on elections and whatnot? You knew that you could have a long-term uh, plan to be here in Penrith as the member? I think
1: I was always predisposed to taking that longer-term plan and then backing myself in to achieve it. I think thinking that you've got a bit of runway allows you to look Mm. a little bit further down the line. Um, I I remember at the time going, it was a much bigger result than what anyone ever thought would would be possible. So that did give me an opportunity to recalibrate and go, all right, how am I going to take that result to the bank? So I'm not stuck in this kind of election-by-election um cycle that's not really going to deliver a great outcome for penrith i I remember the day after the election driving down henry street with maurice um and driving past the tax building actually and looking up at that building and saying to maurice no matter how long i'm in this job when i finish penrith's going to be a different place Mm. and i still remind myself about that conversation almost every single day
0: at, on that point, where do you think Penrith was at politically? Because it had just come from obviously the the scandal involving Karen Palazzano and her stepping down from Parliament. Uh, there was drama at the 20, 2007 federal election as well locally. Um, where, where was Penrith sitting politically, in your view? As far as was it had it become a bit apathetic towards politics? Uh, it was it was clearly in a changing um, situation? Oh, I think they were strongly
1: opposed to the direction state labor had taken New South Wales and the quality of that leadership, and they voted pretty strongly at the ballot box to reflect that. But I think Penrith is is a classic marginal middle Australian community, and I think you see this federally. I think the seat's always going to be pretty narrow. Um, I think Penrith electorate is probably, from a socio-demographic perspective, probably still a Labor-leaning seat, and it's, a, it's the third most marginal seat in the state, um, so it's pretty tight now. And I think that's where it's been for some time. And if you look at federal election results, I've been a member for almost 12 years now. and I've had four separate federal members of parliament during my Mm. time. So that's basically changed at every election. So there's still a... I think there's a state of flux that exists there and that Penrith isn't a a red community or a blue community, Liberal or Labor, like it may well have been in the past. I think it's smack bang in the middle um, and it'll reward members of parliament and governments who do the right thing. And if you don't, it'll punish you.
0: Of course, then 2011 comes along and, um, and, and the Liberal Party is swept to power. Um, Barry O'Farrell is, is Premier. Are uh, your memories of Barry? Uh,
1: great human being. Um, wonderful mentor. Um, probably the worst day of my professional life was the day that he lost the, the premiership. Um, etched in my brain. Um, I remember we were actually supposed to be making the, f- the formal announcement about Western Sydney Airport mm-hmm. uh, with the Prime Minister. In fact, I actually told the Prime Minister that uh, Barry was about to step down, um, first person to to let him know mm-hmm. that. Um, and that in itself was a, like a bit of a milestone day because we'd spoken so much about that airport for such a long period of time. I probably took a big political risk to say it was the community was ready to actually do this and the economic benefits outweighed some of the environmental impacts. Uh, but losing Barry was, yeah, was, was pretty difficult. Um, but yeah, I think without him and his stability, we would never have been able to make that transition. And he really went with a... He, he went with two... I remember about sort of two years out, he started to use the phrase start the change and it was really about preparing the community. If you want this state to be different, you've got to be part of that change. And then when we ran in that election, we said we wanted to make New South Wales number one. Um, We just got sick of being last. And we thought with better leadership, we could make the
0: state the best state in the country. And I think we've done that. And of course, in that term as well, you start grabbing some ministerial portfolio, uh, Minister for Fair Trading first. I yeah, I became,
1: I was elected ridiculously young. I was yeah. 29 when I got elected. The average age in Penrith at the time was 32, which I think is interesting okay. in that yeah. I was pretty close to the average age. So I was probably reflective of a change of behaviour. Uh, but then became a very young minister. I was 33, just turned 33 when I became a minister. And Fair Trading was the first portfolio. It was in December that year 2013 i think um and uh got to got to join the cabinet um and i think you're kind of wondering you know am i ready for this but barry was really great he was like you you know you're a clear thinker you're passionate about your community we want a diversity of voices around the table and he gave me that opportunity to be there
0: Of course, then you took on two pretty significant portfolios in sport and and police. And that sport portfolio at that time was was a pretty big portfolio to have because there were some pretty significant changes happening um, or being at least talked about in regards to sporting infrastructure and and New South Wales bidding for big events and things like that again.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, the police portfolio came along um, and and sport kind of was with me. It was a bit of a weird period of time where, you know, one week I was fair trading and had sport. Then the next week, Fair Trading went to a new minister and I became the police minister. But during that period of time, I'd just taken on that sports portfolio and we didn't really have a big plan. We'd started to recognise we were we we'd fallen behind on sporting infrastructure and I took that period of time between that um, in 2014 and the election to really establish a longer-term position to get New South Wales back being the premier state for sport and major events and the way to do that was make sure we fix our infrastructure.
0: And of course... Um you re-elected in, in 2015 um, and you stay as Minister for Sport until um, January 2017. Were you, were you disappointed to lose that portfolio? Because it was one I know that you were you were very passionate about and there was a few projects I think you were wanting to see through to the to completion as well. I mean, how does it work when there's the reshuffles happen? Do you feel somewhat disappointed?
1: Oh, uh, no. So I held the portfolio all the way to the 19... Uh, oh, sorry, when Gladys took over, so it was yeah. a bit... Um, and I was always pretty sure that at that period of time... Uh, we were going to bring new ministers in and I thought sport was in a pretty good space to hand over. So that didn't really come as a surprise to me. Um, I knew we were going... We had some other sort of challenging uh, pieces of infrastructure floating around at the time that the Premier wanted me to to get involved in and try and tighten back up, get them back on track. So I think there was always going to be new challenges. But I think you want, in any portfolio... And I'd like to think in, in any job that you hand that job over to the next person in much better condition than, than what you got it and with a really clear plan for the future. And I think we've we've done that with sport.
0: Now, of course, Mike Baird um, steps down as well in, in, in the next term. A lot of people would say, I don't know if you agree, I think you probably will, that everyone was always saying, look, Mike Baird's legacy won't be seen for, for, for years to come because he was very much focused on infrastructure and some of those projects have only either recently opened or are still being built. So do you think we'll look back on Mike Baird as, as the Premier that really kicked a lot of those projects along that we probably don't recognise yet his role in, in all of those?
1: Yeah, I actually think that's how we'll think about Barry. Um, mm. So we're, Barry really set those things up, put us on that infrastructure pathway. What Mike did in 2015 was... Break the political impasse in New South Wales over um, our electricity assets, yep. um, which Labor had tried to uh, lease or sell to free up capital for new infrastructure, and you know badly failed at it. Basically, became an in- huge internal battle inside Labor. Um, we were able to take that to the election. Um, get the public's endorsement to do that and that allowed us to free up a lot of value that had been created by the taxpayer to invest in new infrastructure so I think what Mike was able to do was build on Barry's foundation and give us a whole second round of infrastructure that we're starting to see come to fruition now.
0: And, of course, Gladys Berejiklian uh, becomes Premier, who you had a a very strong relationship with. And I'm interested in the 2019 election. Uh, Gladys spent a lot of time out here, and and us in the media would say that's because you thought that you might have been in some trouble out here or the internal polling was you're in trouble. Did you feel in 2019 that, you know, for the first time since winning in 2010, that this could be the one that that you might lose it on?
1: I think everyone told me I was going (laughs) to lose. I I was always confident that I would get get the result, but I was... Realistic that it was always going to be really narrow. Um, I think at the time, a lot of people sort of spoke about stadium investments being something mm. that was... And Labor
0: ran quite hard on that, but... I've had a press conference at Allianz Stadium pretty, every, pretty much, <laughs> pretty every, much every, day. every day. I
1: actually <laughs> think in the end that was a mistake by them. The, mm. I think don't think the public were that focused on that being the, the mm. issue of the election. Um, I think the fact that we were partway through the WestConnex delivery, we just started to put... Uh, the tolling regime for that new road was coming in into play and I think without that tunnel being open there was a real question mark over the value of that the tunnel opened after the election I was the minister for, re- for getting that project back on track and I think you know that put a lot of weight in the saddlebag. To
0: be frank, um, and I was going to actually ask you about that. We yeah. Talk about being handed a uh, a difficult portfolio at that time because that was a a, a really challenging situation, I guess, for yourself, uh, given the talk of West WestConnex and what people were thinking at the time.
1: Yeah, well, Glad called and said, "This is a project that if we don't get right, will really damage our government." And I need you to go away and make it work again. Um, you kind of think. Is my career <laughs> flashing before my eyes? But I guess I've always stepped up to the challenge on on some of those more difficult discussions. And I think where we sit now, what people see with that project, um, the the fact that they can now uh, you know drive in the M4 East Tunnel that was spoken about since the mid nineteen nineties, the M5 Tunnel's now been duplicated. When you'll be able to drive between those, when the interchange at Roselle is is open, and all of that project now is was really set. Set back on the right path during that period of time, and that's what Gladys asked me to do. I
0: might have sacrificed a little bit of local yeah. margin,
1: uh, but I think the state's better for it.
0: Truth is, there will always be someone against even the best project. Um, oh, of course! You know, that, in that's, fact, you know, always going to.
1: Like I've I've done a lot of contentious infrastructure, whether it's a pedestrian bridge over the European yeah, river that's... in a local community, or whether it's a stadium project or a motorway. Um, airports you always you always get during the delivery phase a a lot of uh contention a lot of communities that are being disrupted and it's not till that disruption has gone away that the community sees the full benefit Mm. for it that doesn't mean that communities don't pay a price during that phase but it's it just requires um they say you've got to have a tough skin in politics i think you've you got to have battle armor to be, be a minister who's delivering key infrastructure because during the
0: delivery phase, it's always going to be pretty intense. Twenty twenty, obviously, game changes completely uh, with the the COVID pandemic, and it's interesting. It's an interesting time for politicians, I think, in general, because I reckon if you went down the street and asked people who the Victorian Premier was or the South Australian Premier was in twenty nineteen, they couldn't have told you. Um, all of a sudden, um, we're, we're glued to eleven am press conferences and, and things like that. Um, I'll take you to one part of the pandemic, though, which is the second lockdown in in 2021, um, where the the Penrith local government area is essentially split in two in terms of how restrictions were working. Tell us what led to that and how difficult that was as well, because you would have known that this was going to create a bit of angst in the community.
1: Yeah, so I think the pandemic from a public policy perspective is the most challenging thing that I've ever done um, professionally. I've sat on our uh, COVID and economic response committee or our crisis policy committee. It's had a couple of different names based on the two leaders that we've had. But um, from setting up things like hotel quarantine mm-hmm. um, right through to the, those local government areas of concern, I, I would say the local government areas of concern is the most difficult decision that I've ever been involved in. Um, probably the one decision that is goes against every like grain and fibre in my body. Um, but when you're sitting with someone like Dr Kerry Chant, who's saying we have to take this action because these communities are being overrun by this virus. And if we don't take these localised and more targeted restrictions, uh, the whole community is, is going to be impacted in a very, very negative way. To sit around the table that Takes the advice from probably the most esteemed public health official that we've seen in Australia in the last 50 years, that then requires me to put more onerous restrictions on Western Sydney. Um, that decision has never ever sat comfortably with me, but I am um, very clear about the fact that that decision definitely allowed our response to COVID to be stronger. And over the long term, there's no doubt in my mind that it's kept it's got more people back in jobs faster and it probably saved hundreds if not thousands of lives.
0: A period of time where we became, I guess, obsessed with these daily numbers that that were coming out as well. I'm guessing that was the same, though, for you. I mean, you're on the inside, but you'd be going to bed every night just going, geez, hope these numbers are good tomorrow. Or or were you getting insights the night before? How was that operating internally? Uh, Yeah, well, we would get get the number, like,
1: they were running from eight to eight, you might recall. We tried to, because there was a lot of the media got completely obsessed with with literally daily numbers. And so we had to put some structure. So, you know, you weren't commenting, you you weren't, press conferences weren't about, you know, what happened between 8 p.m. and the time Gladys Mm. and Kerry stood up at 11 o'clock or something like that. So we would know the night before what they were going to be. But I think in the early days where you were trying to work out whether there was going to be a peak, you might have watched the numbers a little bit to try and, spot a Mm -hmm. bit of a trend but I have to say kind of the more I got into the daily grind of COVID the less I was focused on on daily numbers I knew that we were in an environment where this thing was going to build and then it was about setting the conditions that minimised the peak and allowed for a faster recovery
0: you would have always known that we were going to get to the position we're at now which is you know tens of thousands of cases you know potentially on any given day but essentially living restriction free largely but how difficult was it from a government point of view to go, well, we know when to, to pull those triggers? Because every single individual has different views on more, and different personal opinions on what they feel their level of safety and risk can be. Uh, people were, would have been happy to just let it rip from the start. Other people wanted masks longer. You, you went through all of that process. Um, there was an issue before Christmas where, where masks suddenly came back for a little period. How difficult was it to balance that with public opinion, health advice, the realities of the economy as well? Yeah so I think the, the public opinion funnily enough was probably the least relevant thing in our
1: discussion. Yep. I know that talk back radio, conversation in a pub, mm. you know, dinner conversation at home, covid was just consuming everyone's lives, but the but what we really wanted to stay focused on was striking a balance between the advice we got from public health officials and making sure we didn't completely obliterate the economy. And that was the balance that we we always tried to take. So there would be times when Health would talk about trying to get to a, um, like they would take, want to take extreme positions. And we would say, if you do that, we'll never be able to rebuild or the economy will be completely cactus. So you would explain those types of things to, you know, people like Kerry. And there were times there where I was like in a meeting with her. I, I would see Kerry Chant
0: more than I'd see yeah, yeah. Um, and be- so, because from that point, um, her her job is not is not to say well what's going to happen to the economy and jobs over here. Her job is purely that's this correct. is the health reality.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. And so, um, and this is the job of. Of elected leaders is Mm. to take the information that comes from the chief economist and the information that comes from the chief health officer and find a pathway and then explain that pathway to the public. Mm. Now, we always defaulted to the side of health as our first port of call because the best way to protect the economy was to have a strong health response. And where we are now, you can live with the virus because of the the resilience that we've built into the community through things like vaccination rates, extra investment in hospitals, um, people being more aware. The virus has gone through a few different phases, so it's now different to what it was when it was probably at its most extreme, but trying to find that balance and and getting through that. And I think when we look back on that, we'll be able to look back and say the success is really determined where we are now, rather than still being in an environment where um, to stop the spread of the virus hundreds of thousands of people have to lose their job that was never going to be an acceptable Mm. position over the long term and we're we're in a position now where I think we can confidently live with it that doesn't mean that it's gone away or that we're in a completely risk-free environment but we're in a position where we we can live alongside the virus
0: how impressive was Kerry Chant during that period from from a behind the scenes perspective because I think you know, the general public obviously became pretty warm to her as, as well. Uh, but, but, yeah, just generally, you know, a kind of operator issue behind the scenes. Well, I think people liked Kerry and Gladys because they were
1: no frills. Yeah. Like, yeah. there wasn't any sense that they were there for anyone else but the public. It's like, I've got to lead the state. I've got this um, health professional here who's helping guide us. And I think that no frills focused very much on the citizen, created confidence in the community. Um, Kerry's a dedicated public health professional, Um, she's a straight talker, um, tells you what she's thinking and probably the thing that I've most enjoyed over the time working with Kerry and there's been plenty of times where, you know, we've been trying to, like my job has been keep people employed, her job is to keep people alive and, you know, coming together on, you know, how do we find a way forward on, on some of that and just recently actually we were at a we were at a dinner together where she was being recognised for her contributions over the last 12 months, and we were just reflecting on on the kind of close working relationship that we'd had over those last two years, and, and she was saying that she's learnt so much about how small businesses function and how clarity of messaging is sometimes much more important than what the actual decision is. And some of those things that she wasn't aware of. So she's learnt a lot over her Mm. time just by being involved and around other people. But, yeah, a very impressive woman.
0: You mentioned that um, Barry O'Farrell losing the premiership was was one of the more difficult days of your career. What about the Gladys situation? And and what was the lead-up to that like? I think everyone knew that this ICAC situation was lurking in the background, but it's still Mm. a a pretty sudden day um, from a public perspective anyway.
1: Yeah, it's... um, it's the closest thing to a dead heat. I, I, yeah. I think Barry,
0: maybe because it
1: happened first, is still kind of etched in my brain. I, I was really surprised by the Gladys thing, actually. So I know that the ICAC stuff was floating around, but I just never really anticipated that um, she would be in a position where she wouldn't wouldn't be able to continue as the premier of New South Wales. Um, I I was a you know a witness for in the public hearing. Um, I was pretty strongly in her camp around the way I think she managed and the conflicts that we have to manage as ministers. Um, I just never, ever expected that I'd see her on that Friday afternoon mm. standing behind a lectern saying she can't be the Premier of New South Wales anymore. And I I don't think the public understand why she can't be.
0: Yeah, in fact, probably, and I guess it was related to the, to the way she handled the pandemic, but probably one of the, the biggest outpourings of, um, I guess you could say, grief over, over losing a Premier.
1: Yeah, no doubt. Well, I think, you know, people, there's no doubt in my mind that, you know, her leadership and management of the pandemic meant that the public felt quite engaged with her. Um, but normally, when political leaders aren't in their jobs anymore, it's either really obvious they've mm. done something wrong or the public has decided they don't want them anymore and they voted them out. And those two conditions don't exist for Glad. So I think a lot of people at the time and that outpouring of emotion, I think, was really embedded in a sense of confusion. They they don't quite understand why mm. a person who was doing such a good job can't, can't be in that job anymore.
0: And, of course, then it comes time to elect a new Premier. Um, your name gets touted around a little bit um, to potentially go for the job, but was that a possibility, firstly? And, secondly, what's the decision process in then backing Dom Perrottet?
1: I think that Dom was – he'd been our deputy for almost five years. He'd been the Treasurer of New South Wales – I think Don was always going to be the person that was um, going to emerge as the the leader. Uh, We went through the kind of internal discussion you have in a party room. I thought it was done pretty well over the course of a weekend. It wasn't, whilst there's always a little bit of media speculation around different personalities, um, we got to a point, Rob Stokes did contest the leadership. Mm. Um, You might recall Rob, um, and that was one of the things that we really prided ourselves on, was people being able to make that choice to contest the leadership. Um, he got a small number of votes in our party room, but we respected that that process, um, and Don was elected with a overwhelming majority, and, and I was privileged enough to be elected as a deputy leader unopposed.
0: A few questions about the, um, the day-to-day world of a, of a politician in, in your gig. Yeah. Um, you obviously have to have a thick skin, but you know, not just from what happens in the bear pit and what happens from the media, but the general public these days can be pretty, pretty vicious on on Twitter and, and social media in, in particular. Do you take notice of that, and how do you deal with it? How do you handle that situation? Yeah, I I think social media
1: is much more a distribution tool than a feedback tool. I think some forms of social media, Facebook is probably coming more of an area where members of parliament have got to interact in the two-way form of communication. Um, you know, people don't write letters or emails as much as they used to. They just drop a message onto Facebook and, you know, are seeking some sort of mm. comment. So we try to work our way through that. But I I do try to ignore most of um, – I shouldn't say most. I try to ignore the, the viciousness and the, I'll call it bile, that exists on yeah. um, on social media. I think it has got a lot worse um, I'm not too fussed about it personally. Um, I know what I've signed up for. I do think there are people that work in our respective teams, like you know, local electorate office staff or ministerial staff. Sometimes, you know, public servants who work for you, who you know, haven't signed up for that type of um, critique and criticism, that don't always have the same capacity to filter the way I do personally. So, you know, that that does worry me a little bit, and I think that the the lack of person-to-person communication or people moving more to online platforms, I think the filter that might exist in person-to-person communication mm. falls away a bit and people say things that if they were doing having that conversation face-to-face, they wouldn't actually say um, or they very much reframe the way they, they discuss it. And I've been in plenty of heated or intense discussions on a street or in a coffee shop or in a pub or, you know, at a a street stall or those types of things and really sort of prided myself on that. But I think almost in all of those conversations, people have been pretty respectful of what our respective roles are.
0: I don't think you see that on social media uh, and I think it's probably getting worse. What about the, these classic lines that exist from people, and it's not just for you, it's for every politician. I mm. only see them at election time. Um, why are you spending that on this when you should be putting it in hospitals? And your argument would obviously be, well, we are yeah. uh, putting it in hospitals. But that, that's a difficult one as well, isn't it? Because people, I don't think, want politicians in their lives every day, yet then there is the, well, I haven't seen a politician in my life every day. <laughs> it's like it's, yeah. the balance is difficult, and also getting the message across that, well, this is why, for example... Um, the Yandai Bridge costs this much. This is why we're doing this stadium because it results in this. You know, it's hard to get that message across sometimes because people aren't necessarily in the day to day following of politics.
1: Yeah, I, I think the, you know, I suspect a lot of politicians who would do a, a podcast like this or interact would, would reject pretty strongly the idea that they only front up at election time. Yes. Um, you know, if you want to have a look at my Outlook diary, you can, you can probably get a pretty strong sense. It's a it's a pretty full book and it's a full book across my ministerial requirements and my engagements in, in Penrith. Um, but I get the idea that every now and again, it's okay to kind of give a politician a bit of a whack. But I think the politicians that, that don't turn up day in, day out, week after week, year after year, I think the public finds them out and, and largely votes them out. So... Um, I think you can probably ignore some of the, you know, they only turn up at election time yeah, rhetoric uh, if you know you're doing the right thing.
0: I think it's a bit odd as well. Like sometimes you'll get the, well, they only turn up for election time, but you'll also get the, ah, oh, he wants to be in every photo. Well, which one do you want? Yeah, I think I've been
1: accused <laughs> of both of those yeah. uh, across the time. The infrastructure thing, um, it's really about explaining to people. Um, if you... If you want to politicise a piece of infrastructure, it's really easy to be emotive about health and education. Um, the reality is, is we spend um, sort of eighty percent of our budget on hospitals, schools, and public transport and emergency services. It's probably even a little bit higher mm. than that. So, all of the other stuff is a really, really small percentage of the budget. And uh, I don't, I don't know. It's sort of at the height of the, you know, if you even think about here, like we've announced a new stadium here in Penrith but the single biggest investment the state government's made into this community is a billion dollars into Nepean Hospital and if you manage the economy well and you create resources and capacity for the taxpayer funds to be allocated across the full gamut of responsibilities then you should be able to invest across all areas of the budget in growth communities and that's why a good economic manager can make sure that Nepean Hospital gets redeveloped and you get a stadium.
0: You mentioned Maurice a couple of times um, as well. Um, How difficult has it been for you guys, given um, her job as the the Foreign Minister and a lot of time spending Canberra and overseas, your job uh, here with various ministerial portfolios? I mean, I'm guessing that you would see each other less days than more in a a year. Uh, Yeah, definitely. Um, I
1: think we probably spend... I'll average it out and say somewhere in the order of 30 weeks a year apart, Mm -hmm. um, if you count it up all of the days. Um, So she does, obviously, if you're the foreign minister, you travel overseas more than any other politician in the country, so there's that. Uh, Federal parliament operates out of Canberra. All of the parliamentary and ministerial requirements like cabinets and Senate hearings and those types of things are all uh, located away from here. But we've got a couple of little sort of fixed markers in each week that we we hold as our sort of time. I think anyone who's seen us at sort of one of the coffee shops in Mulgoa yeah, or Ludnam yeah. or Penrith on a Sunday morning, um, you know, most people recognise that that's just, that's sort of our time together, but...
0: So like any relationship, you still need to go, well, this is time for us. Uh, that, that's yeah, still, if we that's didn't still make, important for you.
1: If we didn't make that time happen, it it, it wouldn't happen. We we mm. could fill every day um, of the week with with work if we wanted to, yeah. but I think to perform at your absolute best, you've got to create balance in your life now i would be the first person to say that i don't think i've got anything that resembles a balanced life <laughs> but what i do think we have tried to do is carve out a couple of markers or key points in time that we hold as our own and and then there's you know a few things that we like doing um you know we we love a pub meal on a friday night um you know Maurice. Most things about Maurice are great. The fact that she's a passionate Dragons fan sometimes <laughs> yeah, tests the relationship, yeah. particularly Panthers v. Dragons days. It's probably not good being at home when the Panthers are winning. <laughs> but, um, you know, like we, we love sort of if you get a chance to, you know, watch the footy at home or something like that, That's uh, those little things are that those little things are good. But, you know, if, if Maurice is away and I forget to put the bins out or I haven't done the lawns <laughs> or something
0: like that, I'll get a little clip around the year. How difficult is it in a community like Penrith that is, you know, we're still... It's kind of at that everyone knows each other world, but obviously growing and, and you know, in terms of though, hey, I know Stuart, I'll give him a call and maybe he can help me with this or, or whatever else. You mentioned earlier about the, the conflicts you, you deal with as a minister, but even as a local member, like how difficult is it sometimes to go, hey, I probably can't step in here, I'll just put you in the right direction, uh, when you probably do want to help people, but you might not be able to. Uh, look,
1: number one rule is being accessible. And accessible for me has also means utilizing the resource of my local electorate office. I've got a team. Um, it's not like my name's on the front door and you know my head's on the poster, but to do all the things that we do, I've got to use the full resources of the team. So we want to be accessible. I, I love the fact that people can ring me, send me a text message, people across this community, and I, I will always look to try and help. I won't test the law. Um, so if it's something that I don't have carriage of or it's not appropriate for me, you, you play a bit of traffic cop. You point people in the right direction. You connect them to the person that can help them. Um, but you you want to be able to empower your community and educating them and showing them how to get things done is a big part of that.
0: Last, uh, general politics question. You are quite well known for no notes as far as speeches are concerned. And people notice that. People, I think, notice whenever a, a politician or a business leader or whoever it is can get up and speak. Because that, I guess, shows that you kind of, A, you know your stuff, but B, you're, you're pretty passionate about it that you can... Mm. For two minutes, five minutes, ten minutes, however long it is, um, where does that come from? Like, do you just go, well, I know it, I don't need it. Um, do you know what you're going to say? Um, how does, where does that come from? Because I don't think I've seen you in, with, with notes too often.
1: Yeah, it's I, I really pride myself on my preparation. Um, so if I'm doing a public speaking engagement, I I want to know who I'm talking to, what are what are we trying to address, what does that audience want to hear. What are the key things I'm looking to communicate? Um, so being prepared allows you to get up and, and talk without notes. Um, then the other thing I would say is if you're really into what you're talking about, mm. so if I'm talking about Western Sydney or I'm talking about sport, you've probably got a lot more knowledge than than what you know. So then it just becomes about how you structure those comments so you don't get muddled up and you've got a nice cadence and a sequence and a structure to how you speak and Um, And probably a good rule of thumb is always speak for a little bit less than what you think you need to. Um, I think sometimes politicians, but more generally, I think people probably sometimes talk for a little bit longer than than what you probably should. You can keep your remarks tighter and more focused, and I think the listeners tend to respond to that.
0: You obviously would be pretty focused on the 2022 uh, state election, but, and winning it, but if you don't win it, um, is there a plan post-politics? Is there... Um, is it the corporate world? Is it um back to your roots in Canberra? <laughs> uh
1: no no plan B for <laughs> me. Um in
0: fact I, I say that
1: quite regularly. I, yeah, I don't I don't have a plan B. I'm one hundred and fifty percent invested in this role. Um and if the public decide that they don't re elect Stuart Ayres in the next election then I'll I'll work out what to do after that. But my my job here is to be the strongest voice for the community of Penrith that's the foundation stone on which everything is built Um, and that's given me some great opportunities to become a minister across a whole raft of portfolios I'm now the deputy leader of the Liberal Party in New South Wales which is a huge thing something like that's never happened in the Liberal Party to have a Western Sydney Mm. um, person in the leadership team and I, I really thank Penrith for that. So whilst Penrith keeps delivering for me, my obligation is to keep making them number one.
0: The question we generally end with, and I know your your time here and your legacy here is still unfolding, but how would you like to be remembered in Penrith?
1: Uh, I, I really, I think it, whenever this journey ends, um, and I do hope that's a fair way down the pathway, I'm pretty committed to keep doing more things, but I, I think that we'll have a stronger, more confident more resilient community than what we had the day I walked into the job I think you know there's more small businesses there's more local entrepreneurs there's more investment in the community people want to know about what's happening in Penrith and I think that comes from a sense of confidence and aspiration that exists in the community and I'd like to think that my role in being that strong voice for the community and delivering for it has given them the confidence to be something that I've always believed that the Penrith community can be and that's the absolute best community and best location in the state whether that's to raise a family create a business attract attract investment from across the country so just the the most confident community that can be and be a determiner of its own destiny and not relying on anyone else
0: well, certainly no doubt that uh, Penrith has changed dramatically from uh, from 2010 to, to here we are in uh, in 2022. And I think I said 2022 election. I won't scare you. 2023 <laughs> state election, of course. and um, Whenever just,
1: it rolls around, <laughs> Troy, I'll be ready.
0: <laughs> Stuart, thanks very much for joining us.
1: Thank you very much.
0: And I hope you enjoyed our chat. On the Record is produced by The Western Weekend. To hear future episodes, search Western Weekender wherever you listen to podcasts and make sure you hit subscribe and check out westernweekender.com.au. We'll see you next time.